Hello and welcome to the Points of Brew podcast. Hello and welcome to the Points of Brew podcast and this this week we have a special edition podcast. I am joined by Tommy Barnes who is the author of Trouble Brewing in the Loire, a book about his travels of moving to France, starting a brewery um, and all things in between of looking after some some rogue animals. Tommy, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, no, you're very welcome. Thank you for thank you for for joining. It's it's a it's a pleasure to have you. So, um, I must admit, when when we sort of got sent the the press release for the book, I was uh, sort of taken about. It's like, what, what's this? You know, what, what's what's this that I've been sent here? Then I sort of I dug into it a little bit deeper, and I was like, oh, watch, this is uh, this is an interesting story. So uh, I appreciate sort of your sort of your your PR PR guy reaching out to me and sending it over and so far it's it's been a very uh, very interesting interesting <laughs> read so uh, so for the sort of the the listeners who who may not have uh, have read the book see the release or any information about it someone wants to sort of give us a a very brief rundown of of what the book is about and your your journey to to writing it yeah um it's this is the second book I, um in 2015 we moved out to we moved out to France, my partner and I. Um, before that, we were working in an office in in London, and we were both very um, uh, we weren't we weren't satisfied, and we didn't enjoy our, our lives in London, living in a tiny flat. So we 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 up sticks, bought a house in rural France, in the, in the centre of France, and um, I started a brewery in the in the barn. Um, but the problem was I didn't have any idea how to brew beer at that time. And so, yeah, so the 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 first book is really all about setting up the, the brewery in France. It's called A Beer in the Loire. And the second book is a really a continuation of that and all the disasters that, that occurred as I tried <laughs> to learn to brew beer uh, on the job and uh, learn French. And um, we had two children in that time and just thousands of really um, angry animals. <laughs> we seem to continue. We seem to have this sort of turnstile of animals with with um, anger issues and uh, <laughs> just behavioural issues. Um, so it's really all about that. Yeah, it's. Um, I'd like to say it's you know a, a book about how to brew beer, but really it's a book about how not to brew beer. I'd say. So it's like you say, it's an interesting sort of amalgamation of events and things that I've read so far like you say like the sort of the moving over then obviously like you say you've moved to France and then obviously moving into a region that's predominantly known for its its wine as opposed to its beer and then obviously France itself as you've described in your book presents challenges of the temperature and the environment and things so sort of what a sort of pushed you to move to France and b what sort of thought I'm going to make my own beer. What sort? Of, what were the two sort of signifying moments for for both those decisions? Really? Well, we moved to France really for romantic reasons. I mean, I was sort of childhood memories, and and um, both my wife and I we, we used to go camping when we were, we were little in France. So we've got these memories of driving through, you know, um, along these okay. boiling hot motorways in France with the the, the windows down because you didn't have air conditioning then, and um, listening to like your dad's Tina Turner tapes on the on the on the on the the tape player in the car and uh, yeah and I love really grew up loving France from that so you know all the the, the supermarkets with all their weird weird things in and uh, um, and uh, also it's, it's 
it's not too far as well, France. You know, so for the family and everything, you mm. can you can you, you're not too far removed. Um, but apart from that, it was a bit of a punt, really. We 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 just travelled around France, stumbled upon a house we liked that we, we we rented for a little while, and then it came up for sale and we bought it. So it was it was there wasn't much thinking in it. To be honest, there wasn't a, a, a great deal of thinking in any of it. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you like, yeah, I mean, in terms of brewing beer. My original plan was to write a best-selling novel. So I arrived, wrote this murder mystery, and it was dreadful. I sent it to everybody, and nobody would go near it. And they were quite rightly. I mean, it was I, I, I can't bring myself to read it. It was it was appalling. So once that failed, I realised I had to do something else. And I'd done a little bit of home brewing with a friend of mine in um in London, and uh, I think I had a plan maybe to try and start a brewery or or at least do a bit of homebrew. And I had all this space in France. We had this barn and um, I got a little grain father, you know, a sort of 25 litre homebrew kit. Yeah. I just started brewing with that, just started listening to lots of podcasts, reading uh, John Palmer's How to Brew, which is the sort of the Bible of the homebrewer. And um, went from there, um, started selling at the local markets, beer. It's funny, like I, I, I can't really remember what that beer tasted like but it can't have been great but I think the thing is when you make your first beer you're just so um you're enraptured by the fact you've actually made you know an, an alcoholic drink that you, you're sort of blinded to all the all the um faults in it so mm. and really where we were the people were lovely where we were and they loved local produce and they were delighted really that there was someone making beer you know it, it didn't really matter so much the quality it was just a local you know somebody local making making beer um and so that's how i really got into it um and I, yeah i went from there and then i bought a little 400 liter uh, brewery and once once the, the beer started selling and and carried on making it um and that's when all the, the problems started really <laughs> from there um because i think i say in the book the prob- i was like i was like a racing driver I could steer steer around the corners, but if it broke down, you know, I didn't know how to fix it. You know, that was that was I could turn the yeah. steering wheel, but that was about it. Um, yeah, so really, the book is about about that trying to overcome all these problems of, of brewing and 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 um and yeah, just generally life. You know, completely different life in a, in a different country. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? It's it's sort of one thing to to move to a, a new country and and start again and have all all that pressure going on, like you say, you've, you've, you've had two children whilst you've been over there as well. And then to sort of have to have a job or a business or grow something to obviously sustain yourself and, and, and your, you know, family, it's not a, an easy move, is it really? So, but, um, but I think this is one of the things about sort of home brewing and, and brewing beer. It's not quite as an easy gig as what sometimes people think, is it like you say, it's all make this beer and it'll be great. But then one thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong and you've just, you've got a batch of beer that you're not entirely happy with, but you've got to kind of do something with it, aren't you, really? You don't really have much of a choice. Yeah, that was the, the, the probably the most awful parts of the book, uh, the, the points where I was faced with a dilemma of either selling bad beer or not having enough money to uh, feed the children, you know, and that, that was awful because, you know, you'd have to turn up to these markets with a van full of beer that you knew was no good and it would, it would have all sorts of off flavors and 
and was I think I made a beer once that that tasted of bin which I thought was a first but apparently it's, it's not there is I, I can't remember the um there's a bacteria I think that, that makes it taste of bin and yeah and so I had to go to a market once and sell beer that tasted of bin which was was a real low point but it wasn't wasn't the only low point that, that, that's the problem there were there were other times as well where I had to go and sell bad beers yeah so that I mean that was was really awful um it's funny yeah making making beer homebrew compared to making beer commercially um it's really consistency is is, is the thing you know mm. making a beer that's that's the same every time and and um uh, to the point where I was at one point debating whether to change my logo to to uh, my strap line to um it, my brewery is called Bralubier and I was going to say Bralubier inconsistent <laughs> and then I thought maybe I'll get around it you know it would be my thing that my beers were never the same yeah. <laughs> and that, that would fool people into thinking it was all deliberate but um I, in the end I thought no no one's that stupid <laughs> they're, they're, they're cotton on um and I, I work currently working we moved back I don't want to ruin re, uh, spoiler uh, spoiler alert but we're currently back in the UK and I'm working for um, a really good uh, brewery down in Cornwall. And I'm just, I'm, you know, learning so much, but at the same time I'm thinking, Oh God, that's how you're supposed to make beer. <laughs> like seeing all the stuff we do in the brewery, like the testing and the, the quality control and um, compared to what I was doing, it's a, it's a real eye opener. Yeah. This is, I mean, I should have done it all the other way around really, but yeah. There's no fun in sort of not jumping in two feet first almost, is there really? So it's, you oh, know. No. It's, it was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It was wonderful to go and and, and terrifying. And, and, you know, it was really living, mm. I, I think, uh, what we did. Um, you know, every day you sort of, you had the, your life in, the, in, in, in your hands. It, you could either royally mess it up or you could, you know, you could ch- turn your fortunes around. All you needed was a good beer or to meet the right person. And, you know, suddenly you're selling away and, selling thousands of beers and then the next week something terrible would happen I, as i say you know the the, the brewery would break break down or or the my dog i had this dog called bert who's my my nemesis and he just he spent what well, we were there for five years he spent five years trying to ruin my life <laughs> and almost almost did um and uh yeah so like you're between him and the the, the brewery and not knowing how to brew um yeah it could turn in an instant you know one minute you could you felt like you'd made it and everything was going well you had loads of orders and then the next week it was you know it fell off a cliff um it was also you had to understand the cultural differences in in france they um they certainly in rural france Mm. they they don't drink beer all all around uh, the all year round like we do um they don't drink beer from sort of after work till till bedtime They'll they'll have one glass of blonde fizzy beer um, just before dinner, and that's it. Mm. And then in winter they won't drink any. So you had to after you know after a year I realised it. So you have to try and sell everything in the summer, and you had to make certain beers that you knew you would sell. And and so that was a real challenge as well. You know, actually adapting to a, to a, a rural French market. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because they, I mean, even even sort of with wine, they've got a completely different perception and sort of approach to, to drinking full stop haven't they compared to what we have here you know it's kind of from from day 
one of sort of been a teenager, oh, just get me hands on whatever and we'll drink it over there. Obviously, they're introduced it quite early in moderation if you can have a glass with dinner or tea or whatever meal. And that's, like you say, that's kind of it and done. So so in terms of, like you say, you you know, you said you've gone to the local markets and things. And, and from what I've read, your, your neighbours at the time that you, you lived near were quite welcoming and friendly. Was that generally the perception of the sort of the, the French people of where you were, that they were all quite friendly and, and approachable and willing to help or were there some sort of people who were a bit distant and sort of what's this guy doing what's he what's he doing trying to sell beer here it's not not going to work yeah I mean in general people were enormously welcoming and and forgiving because I mean as I say this the you know consistency of my beer was 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 it was all over the place so I sort of I lost my reputation won it back lost it won it back over and over again but people yeah people around there they were always willing to to come back and give it another try and and support me uh the bars and 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 restaurants would always stop my beer and uh, you know yeah they were really they were really nice um the, i think some of the old the older guys were very suspicious of of, of it they they just didn't understand you know a, a little brewery brewing beer for them it's just not what happens and they it was a wine producing area so they all drank wine and so there were people that would just you know just wouldn't consider <laughs> drinking drinking a beer particularly a, a, a stout or an ipa or, or anything like that i did have a sort of a, strangely a hardcore following of um little old french women who would buy my stout and i don't i never got to the bottom of it. i think they might have been cooking with it but i'm not sure but uh, yeah, at the market every, it was always two or three little old French women would come up and buy a couple of bottles of stout but no, yeah no one virtually no one no other French people would buy the stout I only really sold that to English tourists but well that's it it's almost like you say when they were not a sort of a, a beer drinking nation or sort of public in the, the local area it's a bit of a hard seller stout isn't it really you know sort of like a blonde or a easy drinking pale or IPA you'd get away with almost wouldn't you but a, a stout's a bit of a a bit of a different beast altogether really I suppose isn't it so um it's an interesting journey that you've had, obviously, from start of obviously moving over to going over there to starting up. But in terms of your background as well, obviously, you did a bit of stand up comedy at the side of your previous job in, in London as well. So what was the sort of the what was the job you did in London and where did the sort of the, the comedy sort of come into it? And how did that all come about? And well, yeah, so I was working as a graphic designer in, in, in London, as I say, in a sort of large faceless corporation, mm. um, uh, deeply unfulfilled. I was a second-rate graphic designer, actually. I was, I, I, I was, but just because my heart wasn't in it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I just, I've always been interested in in writing comedy, and I just, yeah, I, I got the nerve to, to to start stand up. I did that for about five years, open mic nights around London, progressing to sort of the the very lowest tier of of of, of paid work, and and um in a, the sort of the satellite towns around London, but I never quite made it. I wasn't, I wasn't quite, um, I didn't really have the, what's the word? Uh, you have to be either really good or slightly deluded, I think, to, to make it. Mm. You have to have a certain confidence. I, I never quite had that. So, but it, yeah, it, it inspired me really to, to, to get out and do other things. You realize if you can do that then you know, you're much less scared to put yourself out there. I think it really helped in France, just going out there, 
throwing, throwing yourself into it, going and speaking to people in markets, things like that. Even though I couldn't really speak brilliant French when we arrived, I still can't. But um, it just gave me the confidence to not give a shit, you know. And then you sort of, um, so yeah, I think it was, a, it, in general, it was very character forming, really, to um, stand up. I'd like to, I might, I might go back and do a bit over here now just for fun, but yeah. Yeah, it's like you say, if, if you can sort of stand up and, and put yourself in front of a, a random group of people who are pretty much there just to heckle you and sort of see you fail almost, aren't they? If you sort of like in a sort of a, in a weird sort of sadistic way from their point of view, if you can do that, you can almost do anything, I suppose, can't you really sort of put yourself out there in sort of unknown territories and sort of almost expect criticism or sort of put yourself in an unknown situation. And I suppose it does sort of prepare you in a, in a, a weird way doesn't it yeah you i mean you you're um the criticism is immediate you know so it's right there in front of your your face you know exactly what people think of you instantly so um yeah really i think it gets rid of all your inhibitions and your your i mean it's easy to try and avoid criticism in life isn't it but actually you do that mm. there's no hiding from it um and you learn an enormous amount about yourself uh doing stand-up i think and about people generally, about you know how people react and and um yeah, just you learn what you're made of, yeah, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, which in my case wasn't always brilliant. <laughs> so um um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose um yeah, it's I talk about in the book. It's sort of it is a book a bit about self discovery, mm. um uh because there are times when the brewery isn't going well when I'm really under pressure and I've got a family to feed and and um and uh I think that the thing is sometimes you is it's better not to to discover you know the sort of self-discovery is supposed to be a wonderful thing but actually it can be quite traumatic if, if you don't like what you discover you know about yourself then it can be quite um quite difficult to deal with um but I think you know that that's part of the the interesting thing isn't it so it's, it's you can't pick and choose it no it was like, as I say about living, really, I, I often say to people that I really felt like we were living over there, but that wasn't necessarily a good thing. Mm. It was, it just meant it was real, you know, everything was, it, it was wonderful and terrifying at the same, at the same time. Um, there was no safety net, you know, it was just, as I say, your, your, your life was in your hands from one moment to the next. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. It's like if, if you sort of taking a punt and, sort of moved away in in this country like you say you've got the safety net of you can move back home or you can do whatever can't you but when you're in a sort of a, a different different country it's it's quite a big leap isn't it like you're saying it's a completely different way of life over there isn't it you know in terms of how how they live and how you sort of earn a living as, as you did so but yeah it's life sort of takes you on sort of weird journeys but you know to, to go on sort of this sort of journey for, for better or for worse it's you know you'd almost you'd regret not doing it whereas if you hadn't have done it you'd probably regret you know that sort of thing you'd have a regret of not doing it whereas you've sort of been and come back now it's you know and you've ended up where you are now you're probably sort of almost in some ways better off for for doing it in some respects I suppose aren't you yeah absolutely um I mean yeah you know that there's something to be said for having a, a regular paycheck at the end of the month which is mm. which is, you you know what we've got now is that was the I think I was running away from all that stuff before and but after five years of, of self-employment and and trying to start a business that you know it's actually quite comforting <laughs> to, to come back and get a job and know that you're going to get paid at the end of the month um 
Yeah, I mean, I miss things. I'm the animals. The our animals are constantly escaping, and I'm. But you you make you make friends from that. <laughs> like I remember our, our um our goat. I got a phone call from the mayor once to say that that our goat was at the at the um the mayor's office. So I had to go down to the village to try and catch our goat. It was halfway through brewing a beer, actually. It was it was terrible timing, and um I had to run down to the the village try and catch and we. But I got to know everyone in the village because everyone came out to try and help me catch this goat. We were all running around the village trying to catch this goat. Um, and we got it in the end and 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 got it back. But um, yeah, I mean you know things like that it was it was quite wild in a way, um, mm. in its own own sort of tame way <laughs> yeah yeah like like you say the sort of those stories that sort of run through through the theme of the book like you say when but sort of trying to sabotage it and the bit where that sort of the like the goat escapes or the horse escapes and it always seems to be at the point where there's something happening where it's like where you've just started brewing or the middle of brewing and you sort of overboiled the you know you've over mashed or what have you and it's just like there was always something happening at that time wasn't there? it's, like, it's one of the things that you miss it but it's like God, I don't miss running after horse or I don't miss running after goat or what have you. But it's like they say, those those sort of weird moments, you end up meeting people and sort of making new friendships and relationships almost. It's like a, a, a weird icebreaker, isn't it? It's it's odd. Yeah, people, you know, you get people know you and you can get away with an enormous amount just by being like the the, the strange Englishman in the village who makes beer, you know. No one, no one knows what you're supposed to be like. So if your animals are constantly escaping, you're constantly making mistakes they just they sort of laugh it off whereas they probably wouldn't if you were french they would you know they would mm. they would just call you an idiot which which is you know close to the truth but but yeah you can get away with a lot by playing the bumbling englishman um yeah i yeah the horses um i remember we had a yeah we had a wasp i don't think i put it in the book but i started brewing one day and then all these wasps came out of the wall they'd, they'd put a nest in one and so I had to brew this beer with these wasps flying from one side of the brewery over my head and out the door and then back. And um, I couldn't get rid of them for ages. I was trying to get rid of these wasps, this nest. I kept trying to, so for, for several months I was brewing with a, like a, and you had to just avoid the flight path of, of the wasps as you, as you brewed like around this brewery. Mm. Um, which I, you know, that most major breweries don't do. I think they don't have those problems no no i don't think they have animals <laughs> sort of running riot in the in the breweries yeah. almost and i mean not not knowingly anyway there might be some somewhere but not not too many yeah. i wouldn't have thought well, so. actually where i work now they apparently a few years ago there's some kind of tropical spider arrived on on the hops that and, and lived in the brewery for a while they couldn't track it down no. but they just found these enormous webs someone said they saw it once and it was they reckoned it was about nearly a foot a foot wide and a, with a body the size of a fist so, so maybe it's not just me yeah. yeah brief bit of excitement that's a bit more terrifying than uh than a horse or a goat yeah, I think. Exactly. but yeah, yeah it's a brief, a brief brief bit of entertainment either way so um but obviously without sort of going too much into depth of obviously the end of the book and, and sort of what you're doing now but like you sort of touched upon your you're back in in the uk now so is after you've worked with this other brewery is the sort of the intention that you sort of do pick up and, and do it again or is that just going to be a bit of a thing on the side and you sort of just have a full-time job and that's your side gig or you sort of want to sort of quote-unquote do it properly and sort of learn it and then sort of move on to doing doing your own thing again yeah but perhaps um perhaps i would 
I, I don't know, maybe one day, a long time in the future, but at the moment, I'm, I'm very happy working in the brewery. Um, my plan really is to make Bralu Beer the first uh, beer neutral brewery. Um, uh, and by that, I mean, stop making beer and just sell tat like merchandise. And so that's my, um, and I've definitely stopped making beer. So that's, that's you know, mm. the first part achieved. So now I just need to get some tat and sell that. And then um, then that will be, the plan will be uh, executed perfectly. So I think that's my plan really is to sell, yeah, sell rubbish t-shirts and, and, and glasses with dubious uh, logos on. Yeah, some merchandise for a brewery that doesn't exist anymore. So almost ironic. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really put it like that. I don't think it will sell. <laughs> but, yeah, you never know. Um, novelty yeah. value. Speaks, <laughs> novelty speaks a lot for a lot of things, doesn't it, mate? So, you know, you never know. You never know. But yeah, I miss brewing beer. You know, I miss brewing. I think I'm just, I'll start home brewing again, I think, because uh, mm. it's great working for a big brewery, but you don't you don't have any say in what, what you're brewing, really. Um, you learn an enormous amount about brewing, but um yeah there's not 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 much uh creative input so i think i'll just get back to homebrew for a while yeah and who mm. knows one day in the future maybe bralu beer will rise again in cornwall mm. we'll see yeah yeah then and, and you would you wouldn't move back over then would you not for or if you did it won't be for many many years as well to sort of coincide with that do you reckon or yeah i think i think probably not really for the family if it was down to me mm. i would I, I you know i miss i miss france a lot but i think um the general good of the family the problem we had was with covid all of a sudden you couldn't travel and that really cut us. we were fairly isolated anyway and with that it really cut us off and um it just it made it very difficult for you know with two young children and us on our own out there um so we really we moved back for that reason to, to be close to the family um mm. And I, yeah, I can't see that changing really for a while. I think we'll, we'll probably be here, yeah, for the long term. But yeah, I miss, I miss, I miss it, the, the market really, and, and and I miss France, yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. And I, I was going to say, I imagine sort of COVID and the the uncertainty of Brexit and all that sort of looming. Because I know you sort of touch upon that briefly in the book about sort of your partner sort of worried about how easy it's people for travel and what have you. It's sort of kind of puts a dark cloud over the sort of. The dream almost doesn't it really that you might not be able to just hop on a plane and you know for a couple of hours and nip over or whatever it might be it's it's all that circulating must have uh, sort of added to the sort of the worry and the stress as well as having sort of the covid pandemic happen as well at the same time yeah it was it was it went from as i say two 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 hours to london we could get really via plane to then being completely cut off and it really it suddenly felt much further away france than it than it had done before um Mm. um so it was yeah it was a big change brexit was strange because that was what we were most worried about that's what we thought would, would probably bring bring an end to the to our um lives over there and we spent sort of four or five years along with everyone else all these expats it was really stressful no one knew what was happening and we were all just waiting for to find out if we were going to have to you know leave the country and um in the end actually it was fine it worked out you know the they did a deal and, and 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 it was actually fairly easy to stay in France. But then, you know, who could have predicted that then COVID came along and that 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 really put an end to it. Um mm. so yeah, they but those things, you know, they play on your mind a lot. It was, it was very stressful. Yeah, no, 100 percent mate. So and obviously 
sort of uh, almost it'd be remiss to almost mention how it sort of affected you guys over there. Obviously, sort of you using the the brewery to obviously sustain yourselves while you're over there. Obviously, with the market shut and things, how did that sort of affect you guys over there when it sort of happened? What was the sort of the the sort of rules and the differences to here? What was the what was the situation there? Yeah, well, it's terrifying. At first, I remember it. I mean, you know, I think probably exacerbated by being in a, a foreign country. The first thing we did was buy a big bottle of whiskey and lock all the doors and, and windows when they announced the lockdown. You know, because you just don't know what's going on, do you? So I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but some yeah, kind yeah. of, as I say, some kind of zombie attack or something. You know, <laughs> so um, but gradually we realised that there wasn't mm. an imminent zombie attack, and um, and then it, it was, yeah. I mean, everything shut down. Luckily, the government had quite a good scheme to so you could you they would um pay you what was it two thirds of what you earned the year before or something so as long as you could prove what you earned the year before you had some income because there was nowhere to sell any beer certainly for the the, mm. the, the start of the lockdown yeah, um, yeah. they did something brilliant and truly french which which i i, I loved um because they're the masters of um uh, bureaucracy the french you know they always have historically always been wonderful at, at unnecessary paper pushing and, and um so they introduced this yeah. thing where if you wanted to go out during lockdown you had i think there were several reasons you could go, could go out um you know to go to the pharmacy or or buy food or, or things like that medical emergencies um so they produced this form that you had to fill out mm. and you had to tick why you're going out so you say you're going shopping but then there was nobody else to authorize it so you had to authorize it yourself so you effectively you had to give yourself permission to go out so it made no sense at all people you know millions mm. of people printing out all these forms but then there was no there was no one to say well okay you, you can go out i accept your you just it was you so you printed out a form and then you signed it and then you could go out <laughs> if you hadn't signed it you would you could get arrested or you know fined and stuff i know it was wonderful i just thought whoever invented that I think they really showed that France is still top of the tree when it comes to bureaucracy. I mean, the sheer amount of ink, you know, ink uh, toner cartridges mm. for printers that they went through and are oh, brilliant. Yeah, like you say, when, when there's you can't exactly have somebody there just on a sort of a gate, can they sort of for every little town or village say, you're going out, you're not, you're not. So, yeah, it seems like a, no. a bit of an unnecessary box-ticking exercise almost. Yeah, and if you got stopped, they would look at your form and all they were looking for was that you'd signed it. So it wasn't like, it just didn't make any sense. You know, they just wanted to make sure you'd signed a, a, a form that, mm. I don't know, it was very strange, but but that was France view. Um, yeah. Yeah, a funny country, really. Um, yeah. But the lockdown, you know, it was, everyone supported everyone. It, it was, it was, there was a real community spirit there. I remember mm. that the bakers, the bakers started putting all my beers up on their shelves to sell and things like that, because they the bakers, Obviously, in France, bakers are allowed to stay open because bread is one of the sort of fundamentals of, of there, I suppose, much like here, you know. But so all the bakers were open and our local bake, baker would sell my beer, even though I'm fairly sure she wasn't allowed to sell alcoholic drinks there. But she 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 sold lots of beer for me and stuff like that. So, mm. yeah, people were great, really. Yeah, I think I think it's the same here. You know, there's sort of a lot of people pulled together and had a sort of almost like a, a wartime spirit, you know, for for the first lockdown, certainly anyway, then it seemed to that people seem to 
get bored and it seemed to dwindle, I must admit. But yeah, so I think a lot of people got a sort of a bit of leniency and did things that they shouldn't have done during lockdown, like you say, without a license selling your beer. But it's sort of like everyone kind of had to look after each other because, you know, these little places probably wouldn't still be here if, if people didn't sort of look after them and still buy things from them or help them out and support them. So it's it's great that that, that did happen and the, the same happened here as to as to over there and people still supported and stocked your beer when when by rights they necessarily maybe shouldn't have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um we did um we started doing home deliveries as well, which is brilliant because I've got the, I had this old van uh, like it's a, a 1982 we call it a G Neuf and it's it's a Peugeot van. And for some reason they built it with the wheels much too close to the center. So it was like a boat, you know, if you know what I mean? Like it rocked back and forwards. Yeah. <laughs> it was completely unstable. Wasn't it? Um, and uh, it hilarious. It looked like a sort of a ladybird on wheels. And so I started rolling around the countryside in this van doing home deliveries. And that actually boosted my profile because everyone saw this old van with pumping out black smoke and it had an alarm, um, a siren on it. It was an old, old um, fireman's van. So, I put this put the siren on and, and sort of chunt around these these old country country lanes. And um yeah, when the lockdown broke, you know, everyone knew about Bradley Beer then because mm. I've been zigzagging the 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 local area in, in my van. Um that was fun actually as well. Yeah. Again, you get to meet lots of people and things. But yeah. Yeah, fingers crossed it's some of that we don't have to to go through again. Like you say, even though sort of you've had these sort of cherished moments and these sort of positive moments throughout it, hopefully it's something that we don't have to end up going through again because the the sort of the challenges sort of oh, outweigh yeah. the the few positives that we've had during the during the whole thing, don't they? So so yeah, it's uh, fingers crossed we're yeah. almost sort of out of it now and on the on the right sort of upward upward tangent. So um so obviously the two books that you've written, and I know you said you've always had a, an interest in sort of comedy writing, that sort of thing. Was that was it always the plan that you'd sort of write a, a book to almost document the journey then? Or was it just, uh, oh, I could write about this because you've obviously had these sort of events that have, have happened and it almost sort of wrote itself in in some respects? Yeah, no, I think I, I was writing, I was writing a blog just for, for my mates really at home. So and um, when I wrote this terrible murder mystery, I sent that off to various people, uh, various agents, and um, but I did include a link to my blog as well. And one of them mm-hmm. said, "Your your your book is appalling." <laughs> it said, "This is you know <laughs> one of the worst books ever written, but your your blog is quite funny, so maybe you should try turning that into a a, a book." And then mm-hmm. what I realised was the book really became insurance against the brewery because the worst the brewery went the um funnier the book was so mm. in a way like that just i sort of thought god well you know even in the worst times i was thinking well actually this would be a great chapter <laughs> you know and then um, yeah yeah so and uh yeah people say that the, the the books are very funny so that probably tells you how how the brewing the brewing went you know <laughs> it was, mm. it, was uh, it wasn't great so yeah that's how yeah, it happened yeah. yeah i started writing a blog and um and went from there no and then obviously it, it seemed to sort of go down very well the first book anyway because obviously you were you were shortlisted for the the fortnum and fortnum and mason food and drink awards weren't you so in in terms of its critical reception it seemed to seem to go down on that front didn't it yeah yeah it it went it it, it did did well yeah i think and I, I was just saying to you before before the podcast i'm um, about the the fortnum and mason's awards basically the only reason 
I'm writing a book to try and get back there at Fortnum and Masons. So it was a we it was a wonderful thing. You it was full of sort of celebrity chefs and and they just kept popping your glass up with champagne at these at the awards. And I was so scared, I just stayed put in one spot. I didn't move, I don't think, and just drank champagne uh for about four hours until I could barely stand. So I'm hoping to get nominated again just for that reason. There's there's worse things to spend an evening doing though, mate, isn't there, to be fair. So it's you know, and it's not as yeah. it's not as far for you to get home, but although going from I imagine it's somewhere hosted London back to back to Cornwall, still a still a fair old um, trek, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. <laughs> I think Prince Charles turned up last time as well. I got, by that stage I really I think pretty hammered, but fairly certain Prince that might have been a some kind of hallucination. <laughs> yeah, did it or did it not happen? <laughs> yeah, I think he turned up and did a speech. Yeah, but I didn't win anyway, so yeah, <laughs> doesn't matter. It's good, good to be sort of nominated, recognised, though. Do you know what I mean? So it's you know, to because I imagine you sort of been up against sort of some sort of stiff competition in those sort of that sort of category. I imagine so to be sort of up there with other nominees is a is an achievement nonetheless, isn't it? But um, but obviously that's something we haven't touched upon in in, in this one as well. You you've got some um, some recipes um, sort of that are inspired from Tom Matthews. Um, so how did sort of how did that sort of come to be in terms of the inclusion of them and yeah. and sort of what recipes went in there? What was what was the sort of the inspiration be, behind that? Well, Tom Tom Matthews he's a chef. He currently owns uh, Chatsworth Bakehouse down in Crystal Palace. Um, but I met him. His mum lived over in France, so he would come and stay with her. And he just came around. He's really interested in beer. I think he home brews and and. He probably at that time knew as much, if not more than me about beer when I was brewing there. So mm. he would come over and we'd, we'd chat about beer and I'd pretend to know what I was talking about. I'd mention enzymes and things like that and hope he didn't call my bluff. <laughs> and uh, and um, uh, I just got to know him. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. And then he started sending me recipes that he'd like, um, food recipes using my beer that he'd made. And eventually we got a collection of these recipes and they were, you know, super recipes. Um, so we, we, we um, decided to, to put them at the, at the end of the book. Um, and yeah, I've made a couple of them. They're, they're fantastic. Um, uh, probably better than some of my, my beer recipes. I have actually got some really good <laughs> recipes in that book myself, though. I've got a really good Berth Bourguignon recipe, um, which involves a 10 litre bottle, a box of wine which I recommend to anybody. And yeah, um, yeah, it's not all of the wine is for the, for the dish, put it that way. A lot of it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. Uh, I've got that. I've got, a, I've got a really good breakfast recipe in there as well. The apex breakfast. Um, but yeah, his recipes are all right as well. <laughs> mm, they're all right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, they're brilliant. They're really good. Yeah. Um, I include some, I include sort of very basic beer recipes as well, the, the beers that I was making over there. As mm. you know, by the end, I think my beers were, were weren't bad for someone brewing in a barn. They were they were fairly good. As I say, going to a really good big professional brewery now, you do realise how the, the difference is mm. in terms of things like, well, I, you know, I don't want to get too boring, but things like oxygen pickup and, and things like that, the amount of oxygen that was in my beers compared to, to a, a really good brewery and stuff like that. But I had some good ideas. I was making things like a, a I was making a saffron pilsner by the end, which was really nice. Mm. Um, 
what else? I, I, I made an asparagus wheat beer at, at one point because they, they grew asparagus in the local area. That mm. was all right, but I think it probably would have been better without the asparagus. <laughs> um, I made a, a Christmas pudding stout, which mm-hmm. was really good. The, um, that I um, The first year I made it, I tried to recreate the flavours of Christmas pudding by using sort of nutmeg and and um, uh, cinnamon and, and cloves and, yeah. and sort of orange peel and things like that. Mm. And then it didn't really come out that well. So the next year, I got my mum to send me uh, four Christmas puddings from, from Morrison's. I blitzed them up and I just chucked them in the boil when it was, when it was uh, brewing and it came out much better, miles better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, it didn't have much head is the only thing because of all this, the suet in it. But, but apart from that, it, it, was, uh, it was a good beer. Yeah, it was on the brief. Yeah, that's how it should have done. So you know, exactly. And yeah, much yeah. much easier. Just chuck it in. Well, that's yeah, yeah. That's my opinion. Not for the best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think because I think at the start, I think you were you brewing sort of like consistently, sort of was it four or five different beers to start with? Yeah. I think you you got your your blonde and your pills and things. So it's sort of good that you've you know that things did sort of pick up almost to, towards sort of the the back end of of you being over there because it's. It's all learning, isn't it? You know, and it's almost like learning on the job, sort of when you're doing it yourself, isn't it? Because you you don't have the qualifications, you don't necessarily have the scientific know-how, and like you say, you don't know about enzymes, oxygen, obviously your kit. You know, in terms of, I think one of the things that you, your biggest challenge was trying to cool it down. So obviously, with the temperature over there, you want to you had the heat exchange going on, but you can only cool it as cool as the the water was. So you know, you you face quite a few sort of technical challenges that were out of your control almost as well while you were over there didn't you so yeah um i and it's because you're you're not homebrewing if you're homebrewing and you've got a um 25 liter fermenter you can get an old fridge and stick it in a, a fridge can't you but if you've got a great big mm. um well sort of not great big, but you've got a 200 liter or 400 liter fermenters you've got to find other ways of cooling them and then it gets more expensive you know you've got to you've got to get fermenters with cooling jackets or things like that, um, which I eventually realised and doing everything in a foreign language as well was, was you know, just, it's hard enough anyway. I'm not an engineer. I, I, I don't, mm. that side of brewing is always, always my hardest challenge really. And then having yeah. to do it in a foreign language, trying to work out what, what the vocabulary was for, for various, I don't know, joins and, and, you know, nuts and bolts and things was, was, mm. was very difficult. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, as part of that, obviously you're using sort of French ingredients, French hops and that sort of thing as well. So in terms of the 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 French hops in obviously compared to what we've probably got over here in the American hops as well. So how did that sort of did that make a big difference to how we sort of brewed as well? Did the, the hops sort of give different flavors or react differently to what they would have done if you'd gone down the stair of well, I can use, you know, sort of as for want of a better way of putting it, tried and tested hopping methods would, would did that present any sort of challenges as well or definitely um i wanted to make my ipa um an ipa using french hops or at least european hops because i just thought mm. when i first started because i just thought um you know trying to compete with all these really good ipas from america or american style ipas was, was going to be difficult so but what i found in the end was they have various new varieties of hops in France and in Germany as well, but none of them are quite um, can really replace the sort of the new 
new world hops um yeah so my final ipa i was using um uh a german hop um solero but only with uh, in conjunction with a, an american hop as well to make an ipa and that worked mm. i thought that worked really well but i just found on their own i think there's solero there's Callista, is another german hop um mm. triskel is a french hop which they they claim has these sort of uh you know fruity ipa flavors but they all had a sort of grassiness that 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 yeah. they, they couldn't seem to get rid of they, you know that sort of more traditional hoppy flavor that mm. was there um so yeah to trying to make ipas with with Euro, european hops personally i found um i i didn't succeed in in the end i had to go go and and buy some American hops as well and, and, and do that. Um, but yeah, my other beers, I don't know, French, French beers are funny, you know, they do things like they boil, they, they boil for like 12 hours there, you know, some of their blonde beers or tw it's even 24 hours. I think some people, mm. and they use, yeah, the hops that they use are different. I don't know. It's a completely alien style, really. Something I only yeah. really got into very, you know, um, in a very sort of shallow way i didn't really get down to the nuts and bolts of, of a french brewing mm. yeah yeah like you say it's, it's obviously predominantly wine over there so i imagine trying to sort of get that knowledge or even a, a brewery close by to you i imagine there probably wasn't sort of a a decent sized brewer for for quite a distance i would imagine wouldn't there? it'd be yeah fair fair distance away there was a guy um who had a good brewery about half an hour away he was Belgian and he just built Belgian mm. beers and they were really super beers, yeah. but they were, you know, very specific um, beers. But, and there was, yeah, there was this sort of a, quite a very, very trendy brewery an hour or so away making all sorts of hibiscus sours and, and things like that. And, and so, you mm. know, that, yeah, but they were in a big city and where I was, mm. that just wouldn't fly. Where I was, yeah. I learned very quickly in order to survive you had to make a blonde beer a blonde fizzy beer um but i also got started to appreciate those sort of beers more you know um because there is a place for them i think in a a really hot day as an, an, a, a nice little a, a demi they call it a little um half glass of beer in, in a cafe is mm. you know refreshing blonde beer is super yeah, well, that's it's almost, it's almost like having sort of like a Pilsner or a Lager, I imagine, won't it? Just sort of something nice and easy to drink and refreshing, but not too sort of strong or challenging. Yeah, that's exactly it. They tend to have a Pilsner or they would have and they would have a Pilsner and maybe a stronger Belgian beer, like a, mm. a Lef or um, something like that. Yeah, so you, th those were really the, the two things that most people drank. Mm. Um, so I tried to make, in the end, I was making really a, a Belgian-style blonde and, a, and, as I say, a Saffron Pilsner. Mm. Um, along with other beers, you know, that that I found more interesting. Yeah, and the, yeah. the clientele was a big mix. In, in the summer, there were lots of tourists as well. So, you know, then you could sell more sort of uh, English-style beers and, and things like that. There were lots of English people there by then. Mm. But to survive, yeah, you had to, make, you had to make a blonde. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. And, it's, and that's sort of the challenge. I sometimes think that sort of breweries also face of any scale from your scale to sort of the big ones is that in even if they're sort of more commercial is that they've got to almost do what sells not always necessarily what they want to make which i think is almost like a, a sad thing but it's a necessary evil isn't it because at the end of the day if you're not 
making what people don't want or not making what people want is that you're not going to get very far, are you? So you kind of almost have to, if you don't enjoy it as such, so to speak, you still have to have to do it and sort of your creativity almost is a bit, you know, it's bottled up almost, isn't it, in some respect? Absolutely. We were talking earlier about the difference between home brewing and um, commercial brewing. You know, that's one of the big differences is you can't just make whatever you want. You've got to think about what's going to sell and, you know, you've got to be pragmatic about it. Um, there, there were um, the sort of challenges I faced with things like labels. Um, I, to buy labels at a good enough price, you had to buy thousands and thousands of labels which meant then that you would then have to, you were committed to making thousands and thousands of the same beer. So, yeah. um, so there were things like that, 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 you know, really tied you down as well. Um, it was, I, eventually I found a, um, a online labeler who would do much smaller runs and that really freed me up. That was a quite a was little funny things like that, that really were big differences, you know, made big differences. When I found a, a, someone who would do much smaller runs for a reasonable price, it meant that I could then, be more, more creative and do a much bigger range of beers um so yeah they're, they're, you know these sort of challenges that you wouldn't really think of before you start doing but there's there, there are various ways that you're limited when, when you start mm. producing commercially yeah uh, well, shops as well, big, big shops i was saying to supermarkets and they don't want a different beer every month they want the beer you sold them last time that that, that sold you know they there's yeah. just the same beer again so, yeah, you know, there are various restrictions on it. Yeah. Well, that's it. There's all these hidden little things, isn't there? The little costs of labelling bottles, all like you say, all the little things that sort of... It's these little things that, that seemingly don't cost a lot of money, but all add up, don't they? There are all these little stress points and cost points yeah. that need to be scrutinised at every step because, well, my label's out as cheap or I've had to pay more for my bottles or whatever, or my ingredients. It It's never sort of a, a straightforward thing, unfortunately, is it? So No. Yeah. No, and yeah, it's a, and at that level, it's all about um, economy of scale as well. So mm. you know, it would be lovely to have some really elaborate bottles with with your name embossed on them and stuff. But unless you're buying hundreds of thousands of them, you, you, they're going to cost you you know more than it you, than you'd ever sell the beer for. So yeah, really, you you've got to be. I think I was using by the end, I was using standard long necks, the, the cheapest bottles I could find. If I, I think the idea was if you then grow and become a much bigger brewery, then you've got much more buying power and you can start getting customized things. And, you know, but yeah, the reality yeah. of being a, a tiny brewer like that is you've just, you've, you've got to get cheap generic bottles and, you know, all that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's it. And you grow the brand and then you sort of, you can expand and sort of change can't you, over time. But yeah. it's interesting you say you're going into supermarkets. It, it was, is that quite an easy thing for you to, to get into then for, for over there? Because obviously that, that probably is something that's quite challenging over here. And obviously is, you know, that I imagine supermarkets are quite cost prohibitive in some respects over here. And so they're trying to drive costs down. Was that an easy thing for you to sort of break into over there then? Or? It was amazingly easy. It was a yeah really they, because they have they are committed to supporting local producers in supermarkets as well. I think they're probably forced mm. to by the government. There's probably I'm not quite sure what the scheme is, but um, and just by going out and talking to people, I remember I got I got to know one supermarket manager, and he 
on my behalf then went and emailed other supermarkets in the local area for the same chain and so he stopped me and then these other other places have stopped me the guy the local guy in our, in our town he just came to the market one day and said can we sell your beer in our supermarket um so yeah yeah it was it was i think probably completely the opposite to here they were none of them tried to get me down on price they i named i told them what i sold it for and, and that was it and they took it mm. yeah but i mean you know again very small amounts really can it's not like a and these were two specific local supermarkets it wasn't like i was selling to all of you know tesco's or whatever like that it was yeah, just yeah. Um, it, yeah but yeah no they were very very friendly really but generally speaking as i say the shops bars and and, and were really supportive of the business despite some of the beers frankly yeah yeah, yeah. but i think that like you say it's good that they sort of even if they are forced to in some respects that that awareness of local produce you know producers beers foods whatever it might be at least they are supporting that almost and i think i think we are getting better at that here you know morrison's and places like that are now sort of stocking local beers you know things from local producers and things and, and hopefully that again sort of carries over here because again sort of as a signifier from the pandemic without that sort of support you know the you know the, these sort of places wouldn't exist anymore and I th- but i think the the on the beer side you know they are sort of conscious on price and do sort of we'll buy x but we want it for x price and hopefully that price becomes better over time for the breweries but you know it's it's all cost over here i think which is the sort of the the here and now of it in this country which is a shame but it sort of gets it out there and and for you you know even like you say it was two sort of local supermarkets it got your produce and your beers out there to more people than what going to the market would have done wouldn't it so you know it's it's great that they accepted that and 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 took it on board for you yeah i mean there was a lot less competition over there as well in a way Mm. completely by fluke it was actually quite a good idea to go and open a a brewery in the middle of uh, sort of French wine country because no one else was stupid enough to do it. So there were there were there weren't many other breweries around. So yeah. that, that you know I think over here now what well, every town's got a couple of breweries really haven't they? And so the mm. probably is the competition here is much stiffer. But I do agree. I think people are more interested in local ingredients now and and local local produce. Um, so I think um, yeah, it does seem to be going more like that. I don't I I imagine we'll see more and more um local producers in supermarkets i think it'll probably follow the the, the french model yeah fingers crossed mate fingers crossed because it's like it's ultimate without the support they, they haven't got the sort of the big contracts and things so if people keep supporting them they'll uh, they'll still be here for for more months and hopefully years to come so we will see we will see but tommy i think that sort of is a, a good place for us to to wrap up um after all you told me before we, we started recording it's your birthday today so i will sort of let let you go and enjoy the uh, the rest of your day whatever you uh, you may have planned for. yeah why not mate why not i've got to get ready for work so i yeah i don't i am very very envious of that but uh, before we do wrap up tommy in terms of um of the book um and its availability and where people can find out more information where is the book available where can they buy it from uh, where can they find more information about you and and the book and other bits and bobs of information? Uh, well, yeah, books are available from uh, I want to say all good bookshops, but a lot of bookshops. Uh, yeah, um, Amazon, Waterstones, it's all it's all there. It's called um, Trouble Brewing in the Loire, uh, and my first book was A Beer in the Loire, 
And uh, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Braslubier. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thank you. No, no, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining. And obviously, the the book is is highly recommended. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed reading uh, what I have done so far. I am a painfully slow reader, unfortunately. I uh, every sort of I, I read a few pages and I start falling asleep. So it it does seem to take me a good uh, a good while to sort of get through a, a book. But I have to sort of chunk it down almost. But but yeah, I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it, mate. And uh, once it's once I've concluded it, I'll uh, I'll let you know and, and what have you. But I've enjoyed reading what i have done and uh thoroughly enjoyed this this chat this morning and uh i'll let you get back to bed mate but thank you very much for uh thank you very much for uh for joining me and uh i'll speak to you soon all right thanks great to meet you thank you yeah you too mate take care cheers